1: Hi,
3: this is Mark Kermode. Thanks for downloading this Kermode on Film podcast, which this week comes live from the BFI South Bank and the 50th MK3D show. We've been going for over four years now, every month, and it was our 50th show, and what a bonanza it was. Now, many of you listening to this podcast may be in the process of self-isolating or social distancing. The best thing about the podcast is it's a way of enjoying a very public event in a very private way. All the fun, none of the risk. Now, we had so many guests on the 50th mk3d that we've split the show into two separate podcasts so coming up in this podcast you'll hear from the dodge brothers from neil brand and from sanjeev baskar and the whole show had a musical theme so i've asked all my guests to select their favorite musical moments from movies so sit back and enjoy in the comfort of your own home or maybe out on a run whatever you're doing mk3d part one the 50th show uh, uh, hello, everybody. It's quite remarkable to be here. Um, as you may know, this is our 50th show. Woo-hoo! Four years of me telling the same opening joke, which is which is terrific. Um, I, I imagine that most of you have been here before in some capacity. Um, this is going to be a rather different show to the ones we usually do. What we usually do is we have a collection of guests on and we we talk about, you know, new releases and that kind of stuff. Because this is the 50th uh, show, essentially we've got a really packed bill for you. I'm sure the more keen-eyed of you will have noticed that there's a bunch of instruments on stage essentially um, the, this, the theme of this show is, is musical so we've got a number of guests coming on and the thing that we're going to be talking about pretty much all the way through the show is uh, music in film so if music in film is not your bag really sorry <laughs> you, you came to the wrong one um, uh, so uh, we'll have a, a number of people on. Mo- I think almost everybody no everybody I think who's coming on the show uh, has, has been on the show before so it's kind of it will, it will have a slightly a slightly raucous moment uh, making it up as we go along feeling uh the other thing to say is that because i probably will forget to do all this at the end because by the time we get to the end of the show i might be in bits so can we start by thanking nick for doing all the clips and and where's header where's header where are you and the header for producing the show And Eddie and Jane and everyone for holding it all together. And because I very rarely get the chance to do this, I'd like to thank my wife. Linda's here, so. Now, we have, we have a number Oh, and I'd like to thank the BFI as well. <laughs> <laughs> We have, we have a number of guests. Most of them are here. Um, <laughs> one of them, the last we heard, was stuck at Edgware Road, but it's okay because we've scheduled them for late in the show. Um, so some, when somebody wanders in in the middle, I suddenly go, oh, thank heaven you're here. That'll, that's how that's going to work. So um, uh, let's begin by, since we're going to do a musical show, anybody have a favourite musical moment from a film? So rather than doing the usual questions, does anybody have a favourite musical moment from a film? Can you take the house lights up a bit of so I can actually see? Hand in the air if you do. Where's that? Where are you pointing to, your header? Oh, there, yes. Can we just run a microphone down past the snare drum around the, around the piano, not bumping into the double bass? Thank you for leaping straight in.
1: Hello. Hello. Uh, I, my favourite musical moment is uh, the Girl Hunt Ballet. Oh, uh,
3: and w- which w- so so? W- why particularly? Why is it, why is that important for you? Uh,
1: it's just blissful. It's just because uh, it's so many things at once. Because it's a it's an over the top parody of like um, Philip Marlowe, um, all the sort of uh, hard boiled detective stuff. Yeah, it's a really funny parody of that, and then it's just brilliant dancing.
3: Well, it's amazing that you've mentioned that because later on tonight, we're not going to be playing it, I'm afraid. But there we go. (laughs) Thank you. Let's take another suggestion. There was a hand here. Gentleman here. Then we'll come down there. Just there.
1: Uh, Gene Kelly, Singing in the Rain. Uh, That sheer um, joy of being in love.
3: Do you mean the Singing in the Rain sequence itself? The sequence itself. Because we played in one of the early shows of Sound and Vision, we played the, the ballet, didn't we? The one that Gene Kelly um, uh, orchestrated himself. Yeah, which, which is amazing. But the whole of Singing in the Rain, to be honest, is Absolutely. wonderful. Yeah. But yeah, and it, I was trying to, I, when, when the re-release happened, I was trying to look into that thing about the story about they put milk in the water to make it show. It's not true. It's absolutely not, it's not true, it's a myth. The story that there was milk in the water and then it all went sour isn't true. The thing that is true is that he did have a terrible temperature, probably pre-coronavirus. He had a really raging fever when they recorded that sequence and yet he looks like he's he's dancing on air, which is absolutely brilliant. There's a great story about when they were rehearsing it, Uh, Debbie Reynolds, I do mean Debbie Reynolds, don't I, Linda, Debbie Reynolds, thank you. Um, Linda has half of my memory. She holds onto it, but it can't all fit in here. couldn't she was she Fred Astaire uh Jean Kelly was really pushing her and Fred Astaire came in and she was sitting under a piano crying and he said what's the matter and she said I can't do it I can't do it and he said come with me and he took her off to a private rehearsal room and he showed her him rehearsing for about half an hour and the pain and the awfulness of how difficult it was and he said this is how it is it doesn't get any better and you can do it and she went out and did singing in the rain yeah fantastic uh there was one down here I don't have an anecdote for everyone, incidentally, that's just the other one that I knew. Thank
4: you. Um, Julie Andrews and the opening scene and the sound of music, yes. <laughs> I played it, I had it playing um, at my 60th birthday party at the cinema museum the oh.
1: Castle.
3: Oh, you had your 60th birthday it... party at the cinema museum? Sorry? You had your 60th birthday party at the cinema yes. museum? yeah. What a fabulous venue. Yeah,
4: it was amazing. And, and did, I hoped my friends would uh, join me in singing, but they didn't.
3: No, no. I, I've been at cinemas when I've hoped that people would join me in singing and they didn't. I've just kind of got used to it now. Thank there was, you. Somebody wrote into, the, there's a radio show that I do, somebody, you may have heard it, somebody wrote in and said that they'd seen, they'd seen uh, singing in the, uh, Sound of Music twice, and both times they had thought that the interval was the end. And they didn't know that anything happened after the <laughs> interval. And they couldn't figure out why everybody thought it was this great film because it's just like the Nazis turn up and then the film stops. <laughs> Which is a very different movie. Um, we'll take some more musical suggestions during the show because there is, there is a whole bunch of them coming up. A couple of things that I just wanted to flag up about things that have happened. Um, you probably saw the news today that uh, Max von Sydow has died. Um, this, this is obviously this is particularly hits close to home for me because Max von Sydow is the Exorcist in The Exorcist, and I met him when we were doing the documentary, which Nick uh, Nick directed. I'd like to show a clip from it just because I think it's it's a lovely thing. The most the interesting thing about him was because he was such an an absolute icon of cinema, he was really self-effacing and really kind of humble and quiet. And when we did the interview, I don't know whether you remember this, but there was his partner was there with a video camera because they were making a documentary about Max von Sydow. So they were documenting everything that happened in his life. I don't know whatever happened to that project, but it may be that there is somewhere a documentary in the making. Anyway, when he was making Exorcist, he had more makeup on than Linda Blair did because obviously he was a young man when he was making it. Father Merrin is an old character. He's a young man. So just because, you know... uh, The passing of von Sydow, I think, is a a really, you know, important moment. Just humor me. We're just going to show a couple of minutes from The Fear of God and the great Max von Sydow talking about his role in The Exorcist. This starts with Billy Friedkin. Father
2: Caris, it's an honor to meet you, Father.
1: Von Sydow, I think, was the finest screen actor of that day from his films with Ingmar Bergman. Blatty had told me that the person he had in mind for this character was the French Jesuit priest Théard de Chardin, and it's Max von to me.
2: Of course, my approach was colored by my, say, Protestant upbringing. To me, the devil has never been scary. I I was brought up with Scandinavian fairy tales and folk tales, and in many of those, the devil is uh, kind of ridiculous. Uh, He's always a loser. Of course, I was totally aware of the fact that Father Merrin, he believes. I'd like you to go quickly across to the residence, Damien, and gather up the cassock for myself. Two surplices, a purple stole, and some holy water. It was not important, whatever my personal or private uh, opinions were.
1: When I met with him, I realized how young he actually was. He had often played older in Bergman films, so we knew it was going to be a lot of makeup for him, but he was like a guaranteed performance.
2: I believe we should begin. Do you want to hear the background of the case first, Father? Why? It has a very strong impact, and if you are, uh, how should I say, if you have a lively imagination, uh, anything can happen with a film like that, if you're not prepared. I was shocked by the perspective it opened for me uh, about our days, uh, and our attitude to a younger generation, and to children.
3: So, uh, the next thing in this kind of, here's the thing section is, uh, you know, I play with the band, the Dodge Brothers, and we accompany silent movies with Neil Brand. And we've just started doing a, a new silent film, was an old silent film, it was new to us, um, uh, which is City Girl. And we did a preview of it a couple of weeks ago, uh, and we're, we're about to go and do it up in in uh, in, Bonesse, uh, in, in Scotland, uh, not this weekend, coming weekend. And because we haven't ever done this before, we've had Neil Brown has obviously come on the show before, we thought, would you like to see, and this, this is a rhetorical question, because <laughs> if the answer's no, we lugged a whole ton of shit here for no reason at all. Would you like to see like four minutes of us doing the silent film? Okay. So let me just say this, this is how this works. Essentially, the way that we play the silent films is that we all follow Neil, um, but we improvise as the films go. There are certain themes that we use and certain themes that we kind of, we know we're gonna play in certain scenes, but we basically follow Neil. So uh, please welcome Neil Brand, Mike Hammond, (laughs) Ali Herji, and for today and for day only, Steve Hiscock. Neil, do you want to just say a little quick word about the film while I just wander around to the double bass?
5: Yes. Well, we didn't rehearse this, did we? Um, F.W. Murnau's almost last film. Murnau got this amazing contract at Fox after he had made... um, Faust in Germany. He went to Fox, he made Sunrise, which a lot of you will know, and Sunrise was astonishing. This is astonishing in a different way, because it's phenomenally modern. It is probably the first time a mood piece has properly been given its full uh, showcasing in silent film, and it is an extraordinary piece. You'll see just from the clip that we're going to show you, just how good it is, and I will pass that back to you, mate.
3: Brothers and Neil Brand, please welcome Neil Brand to the stage. A pleasure, as always. Oh, gosh, man. So we just, so we've done that for the just, just once before. Just explain how much of that is improvisation, how much of it is stuff that we're... Because we are making it up as we go along.
5: We are, although that was the most prepared we've ever been <laughs> for anything. Those four chords, we've worked on those. But in general, it does go off-piste very, very quickly. And that's one of the beautiful things. Mike puts together a kind of uh, breakdown of the film for us and suggestions of songs and key- keys to play it, But after that, we're kind of on our own. And the beauty is always when you, you're playing and you hear someone go off on one. They go, oh, that's interesting. Right, we're going to go off and do that now. And it is a proper improvisation. It's one of the lovely things about doing that job. And we're doing it because you said this is how it used to happen with pickup bands. Yeah, I think most bands, okay, you would have obviously had a lot of bands who were reading. And they would all have had probably music they were very familiar with and they would have brought out certain things for love and certain things for emotion all the rest of it. But when you get to, as Mike suggested, of the Deep South, for instance, if you picked up a band playing in a cinema in Tennessee or Alabama or Texas, you would have probably had a band that was mostly used to playing together a lot, doing dances. They would understand each other. They'd be listening all the time. And probably we've now been together as the Dodge Brothers for, what, ten years? You're longer than that, even. Right. So there's not a lot we will surprise each other with except when we surprise each other, if you see what I mean.
3: I remember the first time Mike started using F-sharp and that was oh. that which was, was just shocked me enormously. <laughs> <Totally>. <laughs> it was like all white notes and then suddenly we went into that. Um, but it also was to do with um, people would go and see films because they knew that certain cinemas had better music than other cinemas.
5: Yeah, it was very much part of the selling of the whole industry. So this idea that was around when I first started that you'd get a one little old lady at an upright piano who didn't know what she was doing could not have been the case because by the late 1920s, every cinema, and if you look at somewhere like Manchester, Greater Manchester had 63 cinemas in 1928. If you had a piano, player who was, wasn't up to it that cinema wouldn't keep going very long because they would have had a six-piece band in that one they would have had a 30-piece band in the central one right in the middle of town they'd have had at least three at least four and the music would have been good why we were all told it was rubbish I suspect was because when sound came in it was a huge huge gamble if you were going to put sound in your cinema you had to spend a lot of money and so the sound companies would go. Well, of course you want to do that because you want to get rid of that terrible live music you've had to put up with all this time. And that's what came down to my generation. Was it was all awful. So now, hundred years later,
3: we brought it back. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, <laughs> you've, all, you've all suffered for my music. Just yes, yeah, that's right. We suffer for our art. Now it's your turn. Um, just in case anybody here hasn't seen a silent film with live music, I mean, not necessarily by us, obviously preferably by us, and do come along to Bonessa a week on Saturday if you happen to be in Scotland and corona hasn't shut the whole country down. Um, what, what should people expect from, from a live musical performance with silent cinema?
5: It is completely different to anything else, including cinema. There is a strange live kind of biosynchronicity between seeing the film that's been around maybe 120 years hearing the music that's happening right there and then. And if it's good music, the two just alive together and you don't remember there are live people playing and the music just fits as if it's coming out of the screen. But it is incredibly emotive and I can't tell you why. It's emotive for the same reason, I guess, opera is emotive in a different way to theatre. But the music is driving everything. And so if you're watching somebody going through a harrowing experience on screen, if the music's right, you will feel it really, really deeply beyond anything you can intellectualise it's kind of like a sort of it's a response in the gut and it's kind of, it's very beautiful to be at the musical end of something like that it really is.
3: We asked you to choose two favourite pieces of uh, music from film Nick, Which, which is, is it already first? Yeah, fine. So um, tell us about your first choice which is the train choice. So obviously this is the kind of thing the Dodge Brothers would have been doing if yeah. this was a silent film. The great, great, great Richard Rodney Bennett Um,
5: who when I interviewed him said that he saw his film music as higher journalism because he was a concert composer first and foremost and yet this is the man who gave us the fantastic music for Ken Russell's Billion Dollar Brain, who gave us Lady Caroline Lamb, who gave us... um, so many fantastic scores but this one for transformative music i love trains but even i would have thought this shot was too long <laughs> except for what richard rodney Bennett does it does with the music inevitably at the first at the recording he turned around and lumet was standing in the window going <laughs> and at the end of it he put his his, his baton down and thought i'm going to be fired and he went in and he said, you hate it, you hate it, don't you? And he said, no, it's made it. Yeah. And that's what we've all been saying, since
3: What you love about it? He made
5: it dance. He thought... And actually, it was because he was really into Sondheim at the time. He'd been to see little night music, and all Sondheim's little night music is all in three time. So he basically made the train dance. But also... So that's he, a waltz
3: step. So that's very the, much the, so.
5: Um, yeah, um, but, um, but yeah. it's also 1920s. It's absolutely... Michael York, it's kind of you know gorgeousness of all kinds and it's, there's a little bit of a suggestion in the music that the victims are now locked in this thing, <laughs> we are going to watch them.
3: There's also, at the beginning there's that it's, there is a kind of everything's going a little bit wonky, obviously for me it's really amazing because I come to work on South Western Railway, I've never seen the train moving before it's just, a, it's really remarkable yeah, that'll be a slow waltz. Yeah. <laughs> yeah duh, duh, <laughs> duh, duh. <laughs> so your second piece is a complete contrast to that, Neil. What was the second piece that you chose?
5: I have to say, it's always hard when someone says, what are your favourites? I guess John Williams had to be in there for me because as far as I'm concerned... John Williams is Beethoven, he is Mozart, he is everything that we would expect of a 20th century composer, even though he may not be breaking ground in terms of the music he's writing. But when you watch a film in which he has been given free reign, and in the particular case of this one, I suspect he was given more free reign even than was intended, because he was scoring so often to blank leader. They were still working on so many of the special effects. And I suspect this is one instance where a truly great composer went away from the cut and walked in the garden or walked in the woods and had the idea of what not just space sounded like, but what it would sound like if they were out there and they liked us. <laughs> and that's what we hear during this sequence.
3: What I love about it is it's, it's a conversation through music and it's, it's that lovely idea and it's at the very heart of Close Encounters that... Actually, that's the universal language. The universal language is music. It's not, you know, phon- phonetics. It's its tunes.
5: And that somehow or other, the aesthetic is important as well. So it's not just they're making a mathematical discovery. But also, I think in the 1970s, dear God, we need it now, but we really needed a spirituality that this film somehow or other supplied. Yeah. We needed something out there that was bigger than we were and kind of liked us. And so this idea that when it arrives, it's gorgeous and it's great and it's going to be full of dead people who are going to come back to life, all of that, you know, was all playing into some kind of zeitgeist that yeah. we all needed,
3: Whereas and n- the music does that. Whereas now they just arrive, take one look at America and go, no, we'll come back to <laughs> Anyway, let's have a look.
2: Translation airlock on their audio signal. We're taking over this conversation now.
3: It is a deliberate gag, isn't it? The shot on on Dreyfus and... uh, um. Yeah, without a
5: doubt. Also, I have to say, not a synthesised note in there. That's the orchestra. And it's... John Williams just wanted the orchestral sounds. But I remember, because I just bought my first synth, there's a Moog. That's actually a Moog technician who plays the guy playing the keyboard. Oh, yeah, yeah. And I should say Moog. Moog. (coughs) Moog. And um, I just remember thinking, wow.
3: You know, it was everything a 17-year-old boy would get when I was about... Yeah. I mean, I think the, the best thing about it is it's funny, but it's, you know, and it is, it sort of dances around, but it does feel like, I mean, I just love the idea that people would come from the other side of the galaxy and the language that they would discover is modern jazz. <laughs> because it is that kind of freeform. And I, that, the, the, the Jaws gag at the end is really, really funny. And it's not accidental that it's actually on Dreyfus's face yeah, at that point. not in the least. Those are great choices, Neil. Stick around because you're going to come back on later on in the show to play us some more music. Ladies and gentlemen, the fabulous Neil Brand. Uh, Very quickly before we move on to our next guest, this is such a packed show. Are you all enjoying yourselves? Great. Um, The uh, Parasite has just become the biggest selling non-English language. Yeah, exactly. Here's the great thing. Okay, I said to Nick, can you find a poster for the black and white version of Parasite? Okay, because there's Bong Joon Ho's got this uh, black and white version that he premiered at the Rotterdam Film Festival when we were there doing a podcast with Jack Howard, who I think is here. Jack, you here? Yes. My child, how are you? (laughs) Um, and, of uh, course, this is the black and white poster, exactly the same as the colour poster, but in black and white. Um, interesting thing, Bong Jun ho said that the reason he did the black and white version, he did a black and white version of Mother. He said the reason he did a black and white version of this is that when, when you take the colours out of the film, it means that when you see the, the, the rich house and the poor house, what you see is the surfaces. And he said it's, it, makes the, uh, it makes the shades of grey... Even more kind of intriguing. So I'm really looking forward to that. That's going to come out on April the 3rd, but Parasite is now uh, the biggest selling uh, foreign language film in the UK. And I'd just like to say, Donald Trump, stick that up your bum. (laughs) And now, please welcome to the show Sanjeev Bhaskar. I think I'm right in saying that you were one of the very first guests, and we got you on to choose... I mean, I don't even think it was a guilty pleasure. And you chose an Elvis film to show a, a scene from me. you remember which Elvis film it was?
4: Uh, there were a couple of um, scenes, yeah. There was one from uh, Flaming Star. Flaming Star. Uh, very few songs, but directed by Don Siegel. Yeah. Uh, where uh, Elvis utters the immortal line, uh, you don't like me because I'm Indian. And I just thought... <laughs> Had a character on goodness gracious me that said that so, um, and the other clip was I think from Viva Las Vegas yeah yeah um, which was just a great the female Elvis and Margaret um, so yeah not I wasn't guilty at all
3: no and you're, I, I, the thing I love about your your love of Elvis is firstly you know more about Elvis than anyone I know but also it's you the stuff that you like about it is the right stuff. I do think that there is there is a right way to like Elvis and a wrong way to like Elvis. <laughs> and I love the fact that actually you have embraced th- some of the film because it's very easy to just say all the Elvis films, well, they don't count. But actually, there's about five or six that are great. There's about 25 that are r- really not very good at all. This is true. But there are really, really great movies. And I was just the other day was list- driving in the car and listening to Barbara Streisand singing Evergreen and thinking, wouldn't A Star is Born have been a better film had Elvis done what he should have done, which was to play that role as opposed to Chris Christopherson?
4: Well, uh, yeah, so uh, Jerry Schilling, who was uh, one of Elvis's buddies, the youngest of the Memphis Mafia, uh, told me that he was in the room after a concert in Vegas where Barbara Streisand went backstage and said, I'm doing this film, it's a remake of uh, A Star Is Born, I'd love you to play the part. Elvis was kind of really up for this. Really up for it. Uh, because it was an acting challenge, which he did look for uh, mm-hmm. in his films, but uh, it was very rarely given those opportunities. I think you know directors like Don Siegel did that, and uh, King Creole, I think, is a good dramatic performance. Um, and the Colonel, uh, Tom Hoofgnern. Cornelius Van Huyck. That's it. Um, Who was a a Dutch illegal immigrant, which is why Elvis never performed outside of America because uh, the Colonel felt, yeah, he he would. If Colonel felt if he went out, he'd never be (laughs) uh, let back in. Um, So yeah, it's it's it's, uh, there are some really good Elvis films. In fact, uh, the he did two concert films, uh, Elvis. That's the way it is, which Mm -hmm. kind of marked his return to live performance. Which uh, is they are showing in some cinemas for one night only. Uh, coming up to mark its 50th anniversary. See, I think 50? 50 years since oh that came out. Oh, my God! On. And it's a really interesting film because it's split between Elvis preparing for this and rehearsing, and uh, and you can see him kind of like, you know, having fun with his band, but being quite nervous about this mm. because he hadn't really performed uh, to a paying public in well over 10 years by, by this stage, to the bit of the concert as well, which is uh, shot over three or four nights uh, at... Um, uh, at the Grand in in Las Vegas, but what's really interesting—it's not a warts and all kind of let's get into Elvis's psyche—but I think what it does uncover, having rewatched it recently, is that you can see Elvis kind of refine his passion, mm-hmm. yeah, music and performance. And there's a lovely moment when he walks on stage, and you know it's the first time there's an audience there, and he and he puffs out his cheeks and shakes his head. And then he gets into it. And after that, you just see him be in the moment. And culminating, which for me, uh, which I haven't chosen tonight, um, is one of the best uh, captured sort of live performance moments on film, which is Suspicious Minds, mm-hmm. uh, which is extraordinary. His, his physicality and his strength yeah, yeah, yeah. at that point, his agility is incredible. And then to put that into context, two years later, there was Elvis on tour, which, uh, which won a Golden Globe. Uh, for best documentary, um, which kind of covered his breakneck touring. The year after that he did the Aloha from Hawaii, Mm -hmm. especially in 73, and four years later he was dead. Mm -hmm. And you kind of go, that's extraordinary. When you look at that uh, performance from sort of 69, 70, you cannot conceive that this person has only got seven years left on the planet. Yeah, yeah. But what an incredible document to have there.
3: Yeah. You said that that isn't one of your choices. You did choose two things. Tell us what the first one was.
4: Well, I'm going to be slightly kind of bad guest here. You know, the guest who comes around and... OK. You know, eats You're going to your... change
3: your mind, because Nick's got the clips all lined up. Well, so no, no, gonna... I
4: don't want to put <laughs> Nick through that, but it, it, it's the, the guest who comes around, eats your food and <laughs> drinks your wine and then soils your sofa, um, <laughs> which is... Uh...
3: Yeah, I, I've never had that, but that's the... Obviously... Yes. <laughs> Invite me round, okay. uh, <laughs> Samy Pascal. <thanks laughs> time. Sorry about the chair. Yeah.
4: <laughs> That's why you had the extra chair. <laughs> That's um, so the, the uh, <laughs> always have a spare chair. Uh, but yeah, so the, the brief I got was kind of because people have chosen two bits bits of music, mm. and so I, I've chosen one. Piece of music, a musical moment in yeah. a film, and the other one. The brief I got was, "Can you choose something which has music, a sound bed, and yeah. visuals?" Yeah. So that's what I've done. Yes. Otherwise I may you've have done No, something. no, you've
3: done exactly what we asked you to do. So that means the others didn't. No, because you're special.
4: Very special, <laughs> very, very unique.
3: Yeah. <laughs> okay. Um, okay.
4: So let's yes. do let's do the music first. Yeah. Okay. So this is from uh, a, a film called Dil and which was the first Bollywood film to break into the top 10 in the UK. And it was probably the first time, I think, that a Bollywood film made more money outside of India uh, than within India uh, as well. So it's an extraordinarily uh, shot sequence. Uh, A.R. Rahman, who you may know from winning the Oscar for Slumdog Millionaire, amongst uh, other films, did the music for this. Uh, The songs called Chaya Chaya. The, The actor in question, uh, who is lip-syncing to the song is Rukh Khan, who is you know possibly one of the biggest kind of the fire. biggest star somebody in the somebody world. Somebody said God, um, sort of, but he he still bleeds if you cut him. <laughs> um, but um, yeah, he's he's like kind of you know, Tom Cruise and George Clooney and you know a, a dozen other actors, Hollywood actors rolled into one.
3: Do you know how I discovered ha- just how big he is? Mm. I woke up one morning and literally overnight, my Twitter following had like doubled. And it was because Shah Rukh Khan had retweeted something. I that remember I did. that. It, just was, yeah. it was like, oh, my God. He is the most famous person in the
4: world. Yeah, he's got 35 million followers or something. I and mean, that's just family. But, you know, <laughs> outside of that, there are. You're on fire. There are others. There are others. Um, so the, the important thing to remember in this sequence uh, is that um, I've shown this to uh, DOPs that I've worked with on various things. And they've all gone. There's one particular moment. They've all gone. I, how did they do that? Uh, so this is from the late 90s I think it was 98-ish, something like that uh, that the film came out and uh, you'll understand something about uh, Bollywood and health and safety as well (laughs) as you watch the film, (laughs) as you watch the sequence, so keep that in
2: mind. (laughs) Sorry, she could out, tell it, 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 tell tell it, tell it, tell it, tell it, tell it, tell it,
5: tell Doctor, let me not Tell it, tell
4: watching that i mean i think it's one of the best shot sequences actually uh, of music and and dance and film that i've ever seen but also i was just watching it then and i thought you know some of those shots are quite long yeah. i thought you don't want to be the dancer who's just one bit out <laughs> you know when they kind of go back they go all right where's ramesh it was ramesh wasn't it um but yeah, I think it's extraordinary, extraordinarily well shot. And the going into the tunnel
3: and then shooting as it comes out of
4: the tunnel—that that that is remarkable. That's the bit the DOPs kind of go. I don't know how you do that because cameras obviously adjust and, and you know lenses yeah. adjust and uh, but to keep that
3: going is is amazing. Uh, you made a, a brilliant uh, documentary about Bollywood movies. Is it still available? Because you, you showed it. And you came to Shetland and showed it. Yeah, so people still see it on iPlayer. Uh, I
4: I haven't looked for it, but I, I don't look for stuff that I'm in. It's a humility thing, no, yeah, yeah. It's, uh... Never admit to it. Um, <laughs> uh, I don't think it is on iPlayer, but maybe I can hassle them. I
3: will have a, will have a word, because it Secrets of the the Cinema thing. is going back on iPlayer, so I'll have a word. I'm, you know, I'm big. I've, I'm very... Get I don't I know. Can, I, can have oh, a word. I know you are. So, Sanji, because you are special, we asked you to do something that we didn't ask anybody else to do, which was also to choose a piece of uh, film that had sound effects and music in the soundscape. And yeah. you, cho- you, Very interesting. You went for an opening sequence, which we always love uh, here in MK3D. What did you choose?
4: Uh, I kind of went for... I think uh, the opening sequences are, you know, as as uh, David was saying, the you know, b- beginning of the Bond films, it sets yeah. up the whole thing. And uh, so there were a number that I kind of um, was thinking of, which I think are just fabulous. But in terms of that mix of... You, now it's it may seem kind of quite commonplace now with action sequences to have this kind of approach, but this film is 20 years old mm-hmm. and I still think it retains a kind of punch. So mm-hmm. this is uh, the... Oh, but should we just let it play? Yeah, yeah, go on. I think everyone yeah. will know what it is. You know what it is, don't you?
2: place you weren't supposed to relieve me i know but i felt like taking a shift you like him don't you you like watching him don't be ridiculous we're gonna kill him you understand that morpheus believes he is the one do you it doesn't matter what i believe you don't do you did you hear that hear what are you sure this line is clean yeah of course i'm sure i better go
3: I was working at Radio 1 when that came out, and they they sent a screensaver of the you know of the green numbers. From there. I mean, I thought that was the future. I really thought the thing that sounds a bit like dial-up. Yeah, I, I, you know, it was it, this. Everything about that movie was. I know now it's kind of, some people think it may have aged, but I think it's still brilliant. And the sound of it tells you you're in a whole other world, doesn't it?
4: Yeah, it does. And, I, you know, that, to me, you know, again, somebody who's interested in film and music, as a composer. <laughs> don't laugh. I've got three IMDb credits as a composer, I'll have you know. Um, it's commands at like number 42, mainly. Um, LAUGHTER um, Is is that kind of bit where you get your Foley people in, and they are adding those sounds because it all does kind of play in, and uh, it's a great kind of throughout the whole film actually. It's a great example of that because I'm not just saying it because uh, David's here, but actually um, if if, go and have a look at the opening sequence of uh, Casino Royale because that's a fantastic, that's a kind of masterclass in where you put pauses, where you put music, where the sound bed kind of matches in with it. So it's great. I I love that about films.
3: Well, there we are. That was the first half of the 50th MK3D show live at the BFI Southbank. The show happens every month, although obviously with the current situation, it looks like we're probably on a hiatus. But if you like the sound of the show, just go to the BFI website to check out tickets. The next podcast will be the second half of that Bonanza 50th edition MK3D live show. And the guests are Amara Santi, David Arnold and Jason Isaacs. That'll be the next podcast. Thanks for listening. Stay safe. Keep watching the skies.